0: It's just a few seconds after 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 102.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Talk of the Towns with host Ron Beard is up next.
1: Good morning, and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities, to share what works, to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine, with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine, and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. Maine's early history, like most of New England and maritime Canada, was shaped by codfish. After policy and practice led to a rapid expansion of the fishing fleet in the 1970s, the federal government has tried to balance fishing effort to fishing stocks for a sustainable harvest. But almost everyone agrees that that approach hasn't worked. And we're here today to talk about um, the, the... the challenge of, of uh, the changing seas, the federal government's uh, role, and what people are doing locally to try to um, create a sustainable harvest of fisheries and a, and a sustainable community base on the coast of Maine. We are happy to have some folks in the studio I'm welcoming Jen Literal. Jen is the Director of Marine Programs at the Island Institute. Welcome to you, Jen.
0: Uh, thank you, Ron. Thank you for having me here.
1: We also have Glenn Libby of the Midcoast Fisherman's Co-op. Um, welcome back to you, Glenn. We spoke with you about um, a year or so ago um, by phone.
2: Thank you, Ron. Glad to be here.
1: Great. And um, with um, Glenn at that time was um, Aaron Doherty with Penobscot East Resource Center. Welcome back to you, Aaron. Hello. Good morning. I'll ask each of you to kind of give a little bit of background on yourselves as we uh, get started. Uh, Jen, perhaps with you, um, how did you get started with fisheries interests and and come to work for the Island Institute?
0: Uh, Sure. I moved to the Island Institute in about 2005 um, to work directly with some of the communities and try to. Affect the people that I was seeing in my backyard and at the grocery store, and wanted to make a difference in in their lives. Um, so moved to the Island Institute about 2005. It's a nonprofit group that's in the Midcoast region, and uh, their mission is to help sustain uh, coastal island communities and remote coastal communities. And uh, my work directly affects uh, the fishing industry.
1: Hmm. What was your background? What what um, kind of led you to be interested in this kind of work?
0: I have kind of a very diverse, strange background. I <laughs> uh, Worked as an assistant harbor master in Bar Harbor for several years um, did some uh, genetic research with dogfish and and skates um, and have a a marine biology background
1: great great well Glenn how did you get started in fishing was that a family um, connection I started
2: over 40 years ago digging clams in the St. George River so Mm -hmm. then we progressed to uh, ground fishing and shrimping and other things over the course of time but uh, that's basically where I got my start Um, the reason that I've been doing what I've been doing lately is is because I've seen the fishery decline along with the rest of my fellow fishermen in Port Clyde and we're trying to find ways to improve that situation.
1: Mm. So when you move from clams that generally stay put <laughs> to fish that were moving around, things changed quite a bit.
2: Yeah, the technology needs to uh, pursue fish are quite a bit more than clams.
1: Great. We'll come back to you in just a minute. And um, Aaron Aaron Doherty um, with Penobscot East Resource Center, tell us a little bit about your background and what brought you to um, work for Penobscot East.
3: Well, I started with Penobscot East about three years ago. The organization is in Stonington, and our mission is to secure a future for fishing communities from the islands of Penobscot Bay to Canada. And I got started uh, from a background of Natural resource management and some policy work, and um, an interest in in how these sorts of things uh, all work out. And it was uh, a relatively new field for me. I was really excited to get involved in fisheries, and um, as soon as I as soon as I came to the area, it felt uh, very much like home, and and uh, definitely is at this point.
1: Great. We may ask you a little bit more about Penobscot East um, in, in a little while, um, Jen. Maybe you could help set the stage. Um, Uh, Ground fishing has a long history in Maine, starting from before Maine was Maine and before Massachusetts was Massachusetts. just trace that history a little bit and, and bring us to the present day.
0: Sure. Um, I, I think just I could I could spend probably <laughs> the whole hour giving the history of the fishery, which is, is very interesting. But I'm just going to try to put mm-hmm. it into a snapshot picture of, of to, to set the stage for today's conversation. Essentially, the fish we're going to be talking about today is ground fish. So it's your, your uh, stocks that are the codfish, your haddock, your halibut, your flounder all of those fish are considered ground fish. And that's essentially a public resource. It's owned by you and I, and so it's actually managed federally. And uh, we have, in the U.S., we have eight regional councils um, across the nation that manage different resources. And so in New England, we have um, a New England Fisheries Management Council that manages the ground fish fishery. And that's made up of multiple states. It's made up of Maine, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, New Hampshire, and Connecticut are all involved in the New England Resource Management. And each each council is able to decide how they want to manage their different resources with different management kinds of techniques. So in uh, the New England Fisheries Management Council, there is multiple fisheries management plans. Groundfish is one of them, herring, scallop, uh, dogfish, skate, um, I'm sure there's a few other that I'm missing off the top of my head.
1: And these, are, these are fish that are generally in offshore waters beyond Maine's three mile limit, is that Generally, how that works?
0: Yes, but also inshore as well. They're mm-hmm. they're managed both ways, and there's a crossover between a state management as well. Okay, and the kind of the difference of what mostly people are aware of in Maine is that you have your lobster fishery, which is managed more as a state resource, where you have these zones where fishermen are actually involved in the management, and it's kind of like a upward approach of management versus a downward approach. And, and that's where
1: Aaron's work or penobscot Scott East work with a, a lobster hatchery. That's because local fishermen in that e- lobster fishermen in that area are saying that's a way mm-hmm. we can help with the with the future.
3: Yeah, that's a more grassroots approach. We definitely work a lot with the lobster fishermen in the area.
1: Right, right. So we've got these two kind of parallel tracks, I guess, for to manage fisheries. Right. Continue with your description sure. of the, the federal.
0: Um, so in the federal arena um, for groundfish in in New England, what um, it's been basically a top down approach, and um, there in the last fifteen years, ten or twelve years or so, there's been um, the management system for groundfish, which we're trying to focus on today, um, has been under an effort control where you're actually manage instead of the number of fish that are coming out of the ocean, you're managing the amount of time that a fisherman can be on the water and is allowed to fish. And during this amount of time under this uh, management system, which is called days at sea, so it's amount of days that you can actually be on the water to fish. Um, WE'VE NOT REALLY SEEN A POSITIVE OUTCOME FROM THAT. WE'VE HAD A LOT OF LOSS OF um, COMMUNITY-BASED FISHERMEN um, IN MULTIPLE STATES, NOT JUST IN MAINE. WE'VE SEEN IT um, uh, VERY STRONGLY HERE. Uh, BUT you've ALSO IT'S um, NOT HELPED TO REBUILD THE FISH STOCKS AS WELL. Um, THIS PAST YEAR WE'VE SEEN THAT um, OVER HALF OF OUR FISH STOCKS ARE CONSIDERED OVERFISHED OR OVERFISHING IS OCCURRING. SO WE'RE LOOKING AT IN THIS PAST COUPLE OF YEARS, WE'VE BEEN MOVING TO LOOK AT A NEW KIND OF FISHERIES MANAGEMENT and there were a lot of different techniques that were being um, uh, talked about and finally one was left on the table that um, has been worked into the current fisheries management plan which is called amendment 16 is the one that we're currently working on and uh, that was called sectors and sectors essentially are instead of fishing under a days at sea or an amount of time you're given an allotment of fish and once you reach your allotment, fishing stops versus the amount of time. So it has a much better control over the amount of fish that are coming out of the water.
1: And those are allotments for a particular species or generally whatever the fisherman, the ground fish that the person is going after?
0: Each, speci- each species of fish that the groundfish ca- fisherman catches is given allotment okay. of each one. And okay. They could be different based okay. on how the stocks are doing and um, where those, those uh, stocks limits have been set. Right. And it's different from fishermen to fishermen um, from region to region.
1: Yeah, Glenn, I want to um, uh, get you to tell the story of what happened, um, really, because I think it, it kind of parallels your life in fishing. When um, we reached the 200-mile limit, and kind of we kind of geared up to catch a lot of fish um, in in uh, federal waters. Um, yeah, what the happened there?
2: In the 70s, the uh, Magnuson Act was put in the mid-70s, and uh, We drove out the foreign fleets, Mm -hmm. and then money was made available by the federal government to uh, build up the domestic fleet. And there wasn't really a lot of thought about conservation. They Mm -hmm. never thought the fish would ever be cleaned up, I guess, Mm -hmm. but uh, that was the end result. We ended up building up the fishing power in our own country, and it had a bad impact on the resource. And now we're dealing with the aftermath of that.
1: Mm -hmm. And how how did did the federal government begin (coughs) to think about, well... What's What mean? does what sustainable mean? It, I, su- I assume that there's a, um, some kind of a assessment of how many fish there are, and then some kind of guesstimate as to how many fish can be taken. Is, is that how it's worked?
2: Well, it's kind of a, there's no real definition of hmm. sustainable. Hmm. I mean, you can't use it like organic on a product right okay. yet. Okay. It, it hasn't been determined what that means. I guess, in my mind, and in the mind of probably the scientists and regulators, it means that, uh, oh you're not taking out more than what you need to leave in the ocean for the stock to replenish itself.
1: Yeah, So that's the concept that both the federal government and the fishermen are are thinking about. They want this for the long term.
2: Yes, if if you're going to have it for the long term you can't take out more Uh, you'll deplete it down to nothing if you don't take that
1: approach. But that's a relatively recent um, understanding because with the build up in the 70's it was every person for themselves and take as much as we can because there wa- wasn't a particular limit. Is that
2: right? Yeah, a lot of money was made. Yeah. Um, took a while for the impact to show up. Uh, we had a spike in the late 90s of fish. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it looked like the fisheries management plans were working, but since mm-hmm. then we've seen a steady slope downward in our area. I, I can't speak for everywhere, but mm-hmm. uh, for the fishermen of Port Clyde, it's been a struggle ever since so 90, uh excuse me, 2003 say, it's, it's, it's been a decline and mm-hmm. it's been tough.
1: So you've got these various um, attempts to think about how to manage. Um, Jen has described um, a, a progression from limiting the days at sea that was one strategy, to a different the sector approach, which is talking about limiting an allocation or, or, or the amount of fish that you're taking right. in, right.
0: And and the sectors are essentially a cooperative run group of fishermen. Okay. So it's not tied to a specific area, but it's something that could be tied to mm-hmm. a specific area. So these sectors are a group of fishermen that are forming together, and they're either combining their allocation together or fishing it individually, depending on what they decide. But by fishing under a total allowable catch, a total allowable number of fish that they can take instead of being told how to run their businesses by the government they're now allowed to have a little bit of freedom to figure out what business plans are going to work for them and how they'll be able to to think outside the box and be more creative with marketing um, be not being tied to an amount of time to fish anymore Mm -hmm. which um, an example for uh, Glenn's fleet they had roughly 30 days to make a living this past year Mm. and it's very difficult to, to manage under a certain amount of time period where you can Then work in talking about new marketing structures and things where if you're not tied to a clock, you can think much more outside the box. And then Mm -hmm. also looking at experimenting with new kinds of gear. If Mm -hmm. you're not tied to, I have 30 days to make a living, I can't think about any other kind of gear or any other kind of modifications or trying new things. I have to get as much fish as I can Mm -hmm. in that amount of time.
1: So I assume that... that, um, during the kind of peaks and valleys of fishing, some people got out of fishing. They didn't go ground fishing anymore. And is that what was happening, that they gave up their permits, their their federal permits? Um, Or did they, were they bid, uh, somebody bid for those? And and where did those permits go? Glenn?
2: It happened over time. it's just like any business. If you're not making any money at it, you go try something else. Right. And what happened in a lot of cases, especially down east here, and it's pretty much coastwide, mm-hmm. there was a lot of fishing permits. Uh, I remember when I started fishing, there was 40 or 50 boats fishing around Monhegan Island in the spring and summer every, every year. Mm. And that slowly dwindled down. People went lobstering one thing or another. Mm-hmm. Over time, the issue of excess capacity started to come up at the council. What that means is there's more boats in the fishery and more access to the fishery than what the fishery could stand. And Mm -hmm. since they were managing time on the water, they had to find a way to limit that amount of time that fishermen could use. So what they did, the permits that were inactive, they started chopping off the Mm -hmm. access on that permit. And Mm -hmm. that's how a lot of it went away. And in other cases, people just sold out because they couldn't afford to go anymore.
1: Right. And so the consolidation of permits tended not to be to Maine fishermen. Is that right, Jen? Tell that story about what's happened with the number of permits and the number of permits in Maine.
0: Sure. I'll kind of give the broad approach mm-hmm. of it. And and I think what, what's been happening is that it's been sort of this one-size-fits-all for management. And the one-size-fits-all has tended to support or be more directed to larger scale operations and so the smaller the smaller boat day boat uh, or multiple day boat but fishing from and landing to the communities um, that basically was our history or history here in maine of um, the backbone of maine that we were built on Um, so that consolidation has been happening slowly over time i mean we had Right now, we have roughly 1,200 permits um, in New England uh, to fish for groundfish, and that's across all five of those states that I mentioned. Um, it was double that about 10 years ago, so mm-hmm. we've lost about half of that in in a 10 years period um, due to this. And it's you know uh, small, usually smaller boat fishermen, and um, in Maine, where we're seeing uh, the consolidation. It's been just in the early 90s. We had roughly 350 uh, boats fishing and landing in Maine. Last year, there were 70. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. So that's that's kind of paralleling. Um, Jen, I know you were at a conference at College of Atlantic last week talking about food systems, the combination of, of fisheries and, and agriculture. Right. The same thing has happened in, in farming, that we tend to see uh, up until very recently, we tend to see aggregation of small farms into larger farms mm-hmm. because the assumption was, oh, there's there's economies of scale. It's right. it's better. But that meant that the communities in those small areas with those small farms aren't doing so well, and that certainly is the case with fisheries. Glenn, in terms of, of Port Clyde, what kind of shift have you seen um, in the last few years in terms of, of uh, people going ground fishing? Well, there's
2: less of us. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a pretty stubborn group. Mm-hmm. Uh, we haven't seen a lot of reduction for a few years now, but uh, like I said, when I started, there was a lot of boats. What would happen was in the spring, instead of guys going out and trying to catch lobsters when they were scarce in the spring, they'd wait until the shed had started sometime in July, and, and these guys would all rig up and go ground fishing because ground fish were abundant. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of small boats like that, lobster boats with um, six-cylinder gas engines and small nets and doors, really primitive gear. Could go out and catch more fish than what we can catch today in a lot of cases with the gear that we have now. Because the fish were there. Yes.
1: Right. And what what happened to those (coughs) fish? Uh, Trace the fish. Somebody brought it back to Port Clyde. What happened then? How did it get to the consumer at that point? At that point? Mm -hmm.
2: uh, Well, we... Contract with someone that had a truck, and they would take it to a fish buyer. They'd either be the buyer, or they'd have they'd have a processor that they knew that they would take it to. You really didn't know what happened to it mm-hmm. until you got your check, and sometimes that took quite a while.
1: Mm-hmm. And the check wasn't necessarily what you um, might have expected. Oh, five or ten cents a pound usually. Right, right. right. So, th- what Jen is describing is. Um, under that older model, um, that was pretty typical, and when there were fish there. Now there's both fewer fish and fewer permits, and so you're beginning to think about new ways to connect with consumers. Is that right? And 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 tell us a little bit about the the co-op um, that you belong to, and and the evolution of the thinking. How did you come become a co-op?
2: Well, we came a, we became a co-op as a result of forming the Mid Coast Fishermen's Association. Okay, and that, that was, was the first form. step. Yeah, we formed that just to band together, to try to teach people about what was going on. You know, you get more traction if you're a group. Yes. And uh, I was elected chairman of that, and then we were having meetings regularly, and out of that grew the idea to form a co-op to handle the day-to-day business part of it. Okay. Um, (coughs) Now we've expanded into marketing the community-supported fisheries program that a lot of people have joined up with, and I'm sure a lot of people have heard of, uh, that was born out of necessity Mm -hmm. because we've just outlined all the things that have happened to the fishery. Less fish, less boats. Uh, The fish are further offshore now. It costs more to get them. And the truth is, I just mentioned 5 or 10 cent a pound prices Mm -hmm. on the mass market. We're looking at 50, 60, 70 cent a pound prices this summer, which I'm pretty sure are the equivalent of the 5 or 10 cent mm-hmm. prices that we had 30 years ago. Right. So the actual income to the boats in those types of markets has stayed flat while everything else has gone up. It's been more difficult to catch fish, more expensive to catch fish, and we were losing it, right. we, so we had to find a better way to sell the fish.
1: Right now, um, co-ops have been around for a long time. Certainly, we know of lobster co-ops, and they were both um, to kind of sell lobsters, but also to, to bring in bait and, and those kinds of things. So you were you had some history in the in the larger fishing community to kind of think about a co-op. Was there anything different about yours in terms of coming together?
2: Well, it's actually one of our members who was also a member of the lobster co-op mm-hmm. that planted the idea. Okay, but uh, uh, it. It was basically the same to start. We started out all banding together to lease a dock and share the cost of leasing the dock. When you unload your product at the dock, you pay a set fee to the dock. Okay. At the time, we were all spread out over three or four docks in town, and the fee that we paid was going to the person that owned the dock or Mm -hmm. leased the dock. Mm -hmm. And we said, well, if we all get together, we can uh, pool that money, and if there's any left over at the end of the year like you do with a co-op, we can split it up. Mm. And it made a lot more sense to do it that way. And then gradually, we started thinking about the marketing as a way to actually increase the profit on the other end.
1: Mm -hmm. So, Jen, marketing is part of the the overall strategy that you and others are kind of working on. Bring us back to, you know, the big picture in terms of of those things. Then we'll come back to talk with both of these folks. I'll remind folks, I haven't done that recently, um, that our topic this morning on Talk of the Towns is Changing Seas, Federal Policy and the challenges and opportunities for Maine's ground fishing fleet and uh, Jen Literal from Island Institute is with us along with Glenn Libby of the Midcoast Fishermen's Co-op and Aaron Doherty of Penobscot East Resource Center. Um so Jen bring us back to the the largest set of strategies that we're thinking about here. Uh sure so there's there's
0: this trying to bring everything back in the um, for ground fish into more of a balance. Everything's mm-hmm. been a little bit out of balance where you have this, this shift of the larger scale operations and trying to bring back balance to the smaller scale operations and trying to create opportunities that allow them to think and work differently than what works for large scale. We still need those those markets. We still need to be able to catch mm-hmm. you know larger volumes of, of fish, but we also need the smaller volumes and the smaller scale to To create a um, a local food source and a food chain into our local communities. Mm-hmm. we have We have that for agriculture, we're seeing that now. And to be able to have that mechanism within the fishery is really important. Um, you know, being in Maine with five thousand miles of coastline and having only seventy boats land in Maine for ground fish after a history of thousands of boats being in Maine and fishing from here. Um, so making sure that we're preserving preserving ways of not only access to the fish, but for uh, viable businesses to allow them to create that or work in, within that. And the management system to do that, sectors is just one of those mechanisms that we're trying to move into where fishermen can pull together and work on business plans together. Um, and it's not something that they're used to this is a very big change for fishermen fishermen are individuals mm-hmm. they 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 own their own businesses they go out they fish by themselves they don't want to be in a d- desk job they don't mm-hmm. want to sit in conference calls they don't want to <laughs> push paperwork you know they want to do their own thing so having them come together you know and and what glenn's just described and in, in the co-ops that they're working on that's just kind of the first step and and some of these fishermen it will be a different change but mm-hmm. you'll still be able to operate on the large scale and now, with this, uh, with sectors will be able to, s- the small scale, will help with the preservation, I think, a lot better and keep them a foothold in a system that was tending to squeeze them out.
1: Mm. So, so um, Port Clyde is, is an example of a community that has kind of s- stayed with this. Aaron, you're kind of representing a, a region that has lost almost all of its ground f- fishing um, fleet.
3: Yeah, uh, in eastern Maine, between the islands of Penobscot Bay and Canada, there are about 3,000 fishermen. And out of those 3,000 fishermen, only 24 of them have uh, the permits that allow them to catch ground fish. But unfortunately, none of them are actually catching ground fish today because, of as, as Jen was describing, the complexity of this, they don't have enough fishing rights on those permits to actually make it viable. And a, then an added problem is, um, even if they did have that, it, there's a question of, well, are there fish out there to catch? Mm. And evidence has shown before that there really aren't. So hopefully that tide is starting to change, and, and we'll see next year. When uh, Penobscot East Resource Center works with a number of fishermen to go fishing again, whether the area could support a small-scale ground fishery. But I do want to just take a step back for a minute and talk about um, the, the the sector piece and how it is um, affecting fishermen in Eastern Maine. If you can imagine, in the uh, late '70s through the '80s through the early '90s, there were a lot of fishermen in that region who were catching groundfish. There were. Imagine a a dozen in each of the coastal communities along the way, ground fishing was a major part of the the fishing life in that area. And then the fish started disappearing on the coastal shelf and you'd have to go farther and farther away, the regulations tightened up. And in a lot of ways, it just became much more difficult to catch the cod, haddock and flounders that people were catching during those years. And so they switched over into lobster or uh, they found other fisheries, they found other things to do and in many ways, they were they were pushed out of the ground fishery. Well, now, just recently, the New England Fishery Management Council has selected the years that everyone was out of the fishery. <laughs> so it's... it's
1: In um, order to base um, new allocations on.
3: Exactly right. right. So um, the catch was, if you were not catching during the time when there were no fish to catch, then you don't get, get to catch fish again in the future. And so we are now... Faced with the challenge of trying to overcome this hurdle, Mm -hmm. and um, we're we're doing that in a couple different ways.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Jen, you want to pick it up from there in terms of what we uh, and we're going to introduce in a few minutes. We'll introduce someone who's assisting with that whole notion of of uh, figuring out ways to kind of bring back the ability to fish
0: right so with the which i've talked about this loss of access or mm-hmm. the movement of permits um out of the state of maine so going from just in the 90s 350 in maine to roughly 70 where are they going you mm-hmm. know uh, fishermen decide to sell their permit their right to fish and somebody else can buy it and typically it's been in other states um where there's been other options of either uh, better landing facilities or the ability to land lobsters out mm-hmm. of the state of maine uh which do make up a, a a proportional amount of catch um for some larger boats that are fishing off store catching uh catching lobsters and um So how do we keep that access within the state of Maine Um, Mm and would keep those permits from leaving our state where we dwindle from 70 boats Mm -hmm. to zero and we're sitting on this massive coastline with no access, no way to get out to the fishery. Mm -hmm. It's been closed off that, yeah, there are no new permits. There is no way to bring fishermen back into the fishery and also to to create um, uh, new access for new fishermen that want to come in. Most of our fishermen in in Maine are over the age of 50. (laughs) And... um, (laughs) So how do we how do we get the next generation right. involved in this to keep our history going that's four hundred years old in yep. in Maine? Um, so permits um, are are a very big buzzword these days. There are a couple of different efforts going on um, between groups: the Nature Conservancy, the Island Institute, Penobscot East Resource Center, and also the DMR. Uh, the state of Maine is going to be getting a. Uh, large influx of money to purchase permits to retain access in the state of Maine. And so we have a couple different ways of of tying access to um, provide access for different things of either um, conservation value or for research or for shifting allocation to help the fishermen that are currently in the fishery or have permits with no history, you can move allocation to those permits to allow them to go out to fish. And that, mm-hmm. that opportunity really hasn't been Around
1: before. Yeah. Here. So, is, is this is there our, are there parallels to this um, in other sectors of society where we would kind of um, buy up the rights and then give them back? Is that a little bit like a conservation easement that you know we're buying somebody's right to to um, develop the land and, and they're not developing it, um, and then we're we're using that as a public benefit? You're you're talking about banking permits, I understand.
0: Um, similarly, I mean, you can you can either hold a group of permits in a community, such I know that Glenn has interest in that, in Port Clyde, where that if the fishermen would like to sell out of their business, that, that access stays in that community that's been there for hundreds of years.
1: So they sell to an entity within the community, right. and then that entity kind of then figures out a way to keep those THOSE PERMITS ALIVE AND ACTIVE IN THAT exactly. TO BENEFIT THAT AND community. IT COULD BE
0: A TOWN THAT uh-huh. HOLDS THEM. IT COULD yeah. BE um, A NONPROFIT GROUP. IT COULD BE MANY DIFFERENT ENTITIES yeah. um, THAT ALLOW FOR THAT OPPORTUNITY THAT, to, YOU KNOW, HAVING THE CAPITAL TO HOLD OR TO PURCHASE THE PERMITS BECAUSE yep. THERE IS NOT A LOT OF CAPITAL in the fisheries world floating around right now. Mm-hmm. Um, the fishermen are, you know, it's been a very rough, you know, run mm-hmm. of day days at sea, mm-hmm. and to be able to capitalize on and actually purchasing more permits, it's—it's it's, there's not a lot of capital there.
1: Yeah. You wanna um, provide a little, we do have um, um, Will Brune from the Nature Conservancy on the line, um, do you wanna provide a little background as to how you began to work with the Nature Conservancy? Sure,
0: uh, we've been working with the Nature Conservancy for a number of years on um, different kinds of uh, management techniques and things of interest in the state of Maine um, and ways to preserve uh, our fishing communities here. Um, And some of them had to do with uh, different kinds of management techniques outside of sectors, such as area management. Um, And most recently has gone into actually helping, uh, working with them to purchase permits directly and keeping them in the state of Maine.
1: Great, Well, well, welcome to Talk of the Towns, Will. You were there with us? Yes, I am. Good morning. Great. Glad you could be with us by phone. Uh, give us a little bit of background as to why the Nature Conservancy, um, which we think of, I think most of us think of as a land-based um, effort, um, thinking about nature, but you're moving into some interesting areas with the, with the fisheries. Why, why did the Nature Conservancy take that approach?
4: Well, we felt that there were some solutions uh, or some approaches to the, to the uh, Gulf of Maine ground fish fishery. That were consistent with our traditional market-based approach. Um, it was clear that uh, that uh, the the old system wasn't working all that well, and uh, we thought that there were some ways to go in there and and influence the way that fishing happens uh, through the market. Uh, and one of those being uh, a permit banking approach.
1: Describe briefly, if you could, the um, the general philosophy of the Nature Conservancy to use this market-based approach on land, so that people kind of see the parallel. How, how do you use a market approach um, in terms of land conservation?
4: Well, our, our traditional approach um, in, the, in the 50 years of the Nature Conservancy has been essentially a, sort of a, a, non, um, a non-adversarial approach to, to conservation issues. So we've done that by working with big timber companies. Uh, in the West, we've established uh, grassland banks to deal with the problem of overgrazing, which has some parallels to the, um, to, uh, the fishing issues that we face right now. So um, by basically owning a piece of the resource, we can then make that, that resource available to, um, to fishermen or in, in, in the West, uh, 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 cattle grazers to, um, to facilitate more
1: sustainable practices. Great. I'm just going to break in to um, remind listeners that they're tuned to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We're talking about the changing seas, federal policy, and, and the changes and, and opportunities for main ground fishermen and um, Jen Literal is with us from the Island Institute. She's director of marine programs there. Um, Glenn Libby is with us here in the studio, and he's with the Midcoast Fishermen's Co-op. Uh, Aaron Doherty is here from Penobscot East Fisheries Center, and we have on the, on the line Will Brune from the Nature Conservancy. A little later on you can participate as well if you'd like to give us a call in this conversation about uh, changes at the local level for fishing, uh, ground fishing, one 625 9378 Back to you, Will. Um, w- describe the, the permit banking process that you've been involved in and, and, and why is it called a bank?
4: Uh, it's uh, it's in it's in its infancy stage because uh, we've we've worked to acquire uh, two permits with uh, the Island Institute and the Penobscot East uh, Research Center. But at this point, with the uh, with the permit um, that we've been using the most this summer, it's to make those days at sea available to fishermen for research. Um, under the current system, if a if a fisherman wants to go out and try some new gear and and try to build a better mousetrap. Uh, the fisherman has to ha- use days at sea, and the fishermen are so squeezed with the sea that it's, there are not many incentives to 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 use a day at sea to try out new gear. Uh-huh. So we have um, made these days at sea available uh, for for research. So we had some engineers work up a, um, a better net that we think that will fish cleaner and reduce uh, catching of of species that uh, are unwanted, uh, known as bycatch. So we've uh, worked with researchers to develop some new gear and then made those days at sea available uh, to fishermen to try that new gear to see if, uh, to see if we can find some ways to, to uh, reduce the amount of uh, bycatch.
1: So basically, you, you hold the permit and then you allow it to be used, in this case, for research. But um, you could also figure out a mechanism to, to uh, provide people the ability to use it to actually catch fish for profit. Yeah, banks
4: are, are quite a, f- a flexible tool. Uh, in this case, with with the limited amount of permits we have, we're using those those, those days at sea for research. But, but conceptually, uh, a fisherman could could go to a bank and and um, and pick up uh, either days at sea under the current system or as we move forward, quota um, to go um, to go out and 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 fish. So part of the model would be that with, with our bank that uh, research would be one of the uses and uh, potentially the other quota uh, as we move forward could be available to fishermen to try um, other, new, other new methods of fishing. Mm-hmm. And it preserves that access they have to the, to the fishery and doesn't, um, doesn't penalize them by making them compromise their uh, very
1: limited days at sea. Mm. Glenn, I'll come back to you um, with with, Will still on the phone. Um, This notion of research, um, are are you engaged or some of your colleagues engaged in some of this research?
2: Yeah, we discussed the area management plan briefly. A lot of these ideas came from that. Mm. Uh, The Port Clyde group had an area management plan that uh, they, uh, it was focused on a gear area where we would have gear that was more selective, less habitat impact, things like that. The first year of the research was last year, and the Island Institute partnered with us as well, uh, including also Mm -hmm. the the Gulf of Maine Research Institute. And this year, the Nature Conservancy got on board with the permit bank. Last year, I had to use my own Mm. permit to do the research, and this year, we used the Nature Conservancy permit to provide the days at sea for the research.
1: And what kind of research were you doing? What what were you actually looking at?
2: Uh, we're starting out with cod end research to try to determine the exact uh, selectivity curve of the different cod end configurations that we were trying.
1: Cod end would mean to end some of our listeners might know that. Cod end is
2: the tail end of the net where yep. all the fish end up. Okay. And uh, there we've seen some good results with just a few small modifications. And... Uh, it looks really promising. It's really important because as we move to sectors, as Jen talked about, discards are going to come out of your quota, so you want your gear fishing as clean as possible. Mm. You don't want to be throwing fish overboard because it's bad for the resource, and it's going to cost you money. Right. So this research has become really important over
1: time. Great. We do have a caller who's um, got a question or comment. Please uh, give us your name and where you're calling from, and go ahead with your question or comment.
5: Yeah. Hi. Thanks for the show. Uh, this is Dave Putnam. I'm uh, working with the Main Luddite Revival Movement. Um, I'm, I'm curious about uh, some of the uh, the intermediary strategies that may have been discussed in between the uh, the two, the one you started out with, and the the uh, one you arrived at, uh, and wondering whether at any point in that uh, progress from one to the other there was much consideration given to the option of uh, limiting the technology that uh, is being used to uh, fish. Uh, It seems to me, uh, looking at it from a a pretty broad perspective, I've I've been on the water fishing for about four months in my life, uh, which isn't very much. I admit Uh, I've been following the issue as close as I can, and I was fishing with a uh, on a commercial boat, it was a 50-foot boat, and we uh, we did long-line fishing for quality ground fish. And we uh, we baited by hand so we could use the hooks that had the little J-tip on them uh, so the fish would stay on and be alive until we, we hauled them up. And uh, if we didn't want them, we threw them back, uh, which wasn't that often. Because usually we got what we wanted. We didn't have any bycatch. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, to me, it seems that have either, either either one of two options. You either go with the uh, uh, current technology, and then you have to put all kinds of limitations on its rather uh, fen- phenomenal capacity to uh, overfish. Or you could maybe consider, uh, voluntarily even, uh, restructuring and restricting your fishing technology to the point where your methodology, your method of fishing was its own limitation, right? Uh, you you catch what I'm what I'm
1: driving at. Yep, and we've got people nodding their heads. So thanks for your question, and, and, and okay. we'll see. Okay, Maine Luddites
5: forever. It's yeah. a movable line. Okay, you know?
1: great. Okay. Thanks for your call. Right. And and this notion of of looking at and how people fish is certainly no stranger to Maine. Lobstermen have kind of limited the abu- amount of um, lobster they catch by using a trap method rather than dragging for lobsters. So. Both I think Glenn and, and Aaron have some thoughts about this, this notion of how do we, is there a middle ground or a different way of looking at this? Glenn first and then Aaron.
2: Yeah, the, the only thing I'll say is uh, we talked about days at sea. That's been a limiting factor as far as innovation or investment in any type of other fishing gear. You couldn't afford to do it. You pretty much had to stick with what you had. Now that we have sectors and we'll be operating under a quota system and with the advent of permit banks and things like that for research, It makes all these other possibilities a lot more viable. The fishermen around Port Clyde are actually talking about using hooks or jigging machines and things like that. Something that we couldn't even consider in the past because we, uh, it just wasn't, you couldn't afford to waste the time or spend the time on the ocean experimenting under days at sea.
1: And what the other thing is, and we'll, we haven't quite talked about that, that's the connection with your customer. And they're looking for fresh fish, that, and they know you as a fisherman. Um, and I would imagine that a, a, a line, hook and line kind of a fishery might appeal to people um, in, in, a, in a real way.
2: Well, there's, there are, there's a variety of species we catch, and that's kind of the rub. I mean, yeah. uh, I... I may be wrong, but I don't know how many flounders can be caught with mm-hmm. hook and line. Maybe mm-hmm. there are. Maybe mm-hmm. there is technology mm-hmm. that can do it. It'd be interesting to find out. Yep. But that's we do catch a variety of things.
1: And Aaron, you're you're talking about actually doing some experiments with uh, um, h- hook and line fishing.
3: Right, right. So the the sector that we formed, this ground fish group of fishermen, is going to be using hooks only in the in the eastern Maine area, and um, we made that decision because. We we did want to um, intentionally limit the technology, and if you can think for of an analogy for a moment, there's a reason why um, a lot of people support the small-scale organic uh, family farm movement rather than the large-scale industrial farms. There's a much different, in much uh, big difference in the size of the scale, and also in the technology, in the interaction between the farmer and uh, the resource, and it's the same with fishermen, both on the issue of scale and also on the issue of technology. We've gotten to a point now, with both of those issues, where we can completely overwhelm the resource. Fishermen are extremely good at, at, at doing, um, you know, what they do, and we, we now know collectively that if we want to sustain the resource, as Glenn was talking about, we don't want to fish it all out. We, we want to be able to protect it, and so what we're doing at the Penobscot East Resource Center is working with a group of fishermen next year we'll be using hooks only. Uh, these are um, generally circle hooks. It's, a, it's an older fashion style of uh, fishing uh, called tub trawling. And it's, it's uh, the way that fishermen are catching halibut in this area these days, which is um, both an effective way, but it's, it's also a way to reduce the bycatch, uh, to, to target the fish um, a little bit differently. And the idea is that if we limit the, the technology in the inshore areas, That hopefully we can allow the fish to rebuild this is right now as as we've seen an area where fish have been depleted and hopefully we can rebuild the fish populations but also get them to come back inshore where they used to be so that the small boat inshore fishermen will be able to have a, a place in this fishery again in eastern Maine.
1: And their communities will benefit because um, they're bringing fish to the local community, and they're they're paying their taxes there, and, and all of those good things. Absolutely, right. I'm going to um, ask Will a couple more questions. Um, will where would you like to see this go? This whole uh, permit banking, and 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 are you um, uh, doing anything else in terms of support of, of fisheries? Uh,
4: the permit banking is the primary strategy that we're working on right now, and I think where we'd like to see this go um, is be able to make the quota in the days it's uh, available for research and just provide some more elasticity mm. in the industry so that, so that fishermen have the flexibility uh, to, um, to experiment and try new things. As, as Glenn mentioned, right now uh, just eking out a living under the current system is such a challenge that to go out and, uh, and, and try new things, it, it's, it's, the current system does not facilitate innovation by having the, these uh, days at sea and quota available to fishermen, they can come to the bank and, uh, and take that quota, um, and potentially we, we, set, we could sell it at discounted rates to sort of subsidize innovation, and hopefully as the stocks rebound, uh, provide a transition to more sustainable
1: uh, practices. Yeah. Well, while you're still on the line, Jen has a comment. Maybe we'll bring this together
0: Uh, I just wanted to loop in as well uh, outside of um, the permit banking that we're talking about um, for research and for to allow allocation for fishermen who haven't uh, been fishing before such as Aaron's been talking about there is another option hopefully moving into uh, with the state of Maine actually starting a permit bank as well and making allocation available to fishermen who will be fishing in sectors or uh, if there's still a few boats that are fishing under days at sea um, currently, there's about 18 sector proposals in that make up about 700 permits in Maine. And um, that actually equates to 90% of the uh, total allocation for New England. So there's roughly 10% that will still be in the days at sea. And we've been under this model of having to fish as much as you possibly can and receiving relatively a low price. So You continually have to you know, catch more mm-hmm. to make the same amount of money. So trying to flip that model over and being able to fish less um, and being able to get a higher price, Um, as well as having, um, while we're fishing and what Aaron had talked about, moving into this allocation um, where they picked a timeline that obviously didn't work for fishermen who were out of the fishery at that time. Mm -hmm. We're dealing with that same issue with uh, fishermen who were fishing but weren't fishing as hard during that time. They're also not so much PENALIZED, BUT THEY'RE NOT SEEING A BENEFIT FOR THAT. SO IT IS GOING TO BE A STRUGGLE UNDER SECTORS. THEY'RE NOT A PANACEA, BUT THEY REALLY ARE THE FIRST OPPORTUNITY TO TRY DIFFERENT THINGS AND HAVE DIFFERENT OPTIONS AVAILABLE AND uh, HOPEFULLY BEING ABLE TO CREATE A PERMIT BANK IN THE STATE OF MAINE um, UNDER THE DMR THAT WILL ALLOW FOR ALLOCATION TO COME into sectors that are gonna need more allocation just to make a living to get by over these next few years during this huge change. Mm-hmm. The federal government's been very helpful in, in helping to to get this new management underway and providing money for monitoring, covering the cost for half of the monitoring for dockside, which we've never had in the groundfish fishery before, 30% levels of coverage at at sea monitoring, which we've had um, probably an eighth of that over the past 10 years. So really getting a feel of what's going on on the water, What's being landed, and and starting to get some real numbers to plug back in, and allow more uh, quota to be given out.
1: Okay, and and will let's let's get information uh, for, about the Nature Conservancy. If if people wanted to know more about your efforts, um, do you have a website you could kind of point them to?
4: Yes, uh, nature.org is our um, is our website, and uh, and if you go in there uh, and uh, and look up Maine, uh, there'll be some uh, some further information um, on this strategy and the work that we're doing in the Gulf of Maine.
1: Great. Well, thanks for joining us by phone, Will. Thank you. Have a good day. Will Brune from the Nature Conservancy. Um, we're part of a conversation this morning about changing seas, federal policy, and the challenges and opportunities for Maine's ground fishing fl- fleet. Um, so we still have in the studio Jen Literal from the Island Institute, Glenn Libby of the mid Coast Fishermen's Co-op and Aaron Doherty of Penobscot East Resource Center. If you'd like to ask a question or add your comments to our conversation give us a call at 1-866-625-9378. Glenn and Aaron you've both been a part of of, uh, um, directly connecting to to, uh, fishermen and and consumers and uh, this all ties into this this whole notion of a, a new way of marketing. Glenn you start the story and then Aaron you pick up if you'd like.
2: Well, I like to think that. Uh, well, it actually, it says in the law, the Magnuson Act, that the fishermen own. Uh, excuse me, the people own the fish. Uh huh. So the fishermen basically get paid to bring the fish to the people that own them.
1: Mm. Um, if you. Yeah, it's a great way to think about it because I don't think most people think of it in that way. But that's 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 the truth.
2: If you want to use the definition of the law, that seems to be the only one that makes sense to me, anyway. Mm-hmm. But uh
1: so in the <coughs> past, you would kind of, just like a commodity um, grower of corn, you grew your corn, you sold it to a, a buyer, and that corn got used in lots of different ways, and sometimes it came back to the, your community. Yeah. So you're, you're kind of going back in time and saying, is there a way to connect directly with, with customers in your area?
2: Well, uh, the thing of it is, all these permits, I know we've talked about fishermen's permits and fishing rights and all these types of things, but what it really is is the people's access to the mm. fish. Mm. We're the facilitators of that access. Mm-hmm. And uh, if Maine loses these permits, or any more of them, or is unable to secure access to these things going forward, when the fish stocks are recovered, uh, we won't be able to access them. And that mm-hmm. will be a huge loss,
1: not only to the communities, but the whole state economy as a whole. Mm-hmm. So it becomes the it's easier to imagine a monopoly situation where there's one seller of fish it might be a, a Walmart or it might be a Hannaford, but um, we don't have that kind of local connection anymore.
2: Absolutely. Yeah.
1: So y- you did some experiments in the last couple of years of, of kind of engaging c- consumers in your fishery. Tell us a little bit about that and how that's worked.
2: Uh, the Community Supported Fishery Program. Mm-hmm. It was based on Community Supported Agriculture Program, the CSA model where mm-hmm. people buy a share of vegetables. We did the same thing with fish and shrimp. We actually started small with... Uh, a few shrimp shares in 2007, and uh, we had around 350 fish shares this summer, so it's grown pretty well.
1: Mm. And, Aaron, what has what Penobscot East been involved in? You've been kind of supporting this kind of movement as well.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So, last winter, we started a community supported fishery for shrimp um, with working with Stonington fishermen and Mount Desert Island fishermen. And so we were selling shrimp in uh, five different communities: Stonington, Blue Hill, Ellsworth, MDI, and the Cranberry Isles. And it started off really small, hmm. and I wasn't sure how well it was going to work in the beginning. We had about twenty-five customers, and I thought, "What are we doing? This is this is uh, crazy." Um, before long, that that uh, doubled, and then it doubled again, and uh, it was it was very exciting. By the end of the year, or by the end of that season, which was March, we had. Um, over 100 customers, around 125, and the the most amount of the the largest volume of shrimp that we moved in any one week was 900 pounds. We had some support from the Blue Hill Food Co-op. The Stonington Lobster uh, Co-op helped out by um, contributing some time and bagging the shrimp and uh, helping deliver it. So it was really a community effort, and it was great to have um, that connection between fishermen and customers. We, we will do that again this winter, so anyone in that area um, will definitely work with them on, on selling shrimp locally, and we hope to expand it further down east as well. So it's really going to be an experiment to see how well can this work, not only in this region, but also further east in areas like Gouldsboro, uh, Millbridge, Jonesport, and so on. So um, that's going to be one experiment. The other is uh, as we are redeveloping a ground fishery in this area, you know, years ago there was a thriving ground fishery, there hasn't been for a long time. But next year, uh, we do intend to work with between five and eight um, fishermen to catch hook-caught fish, and we, we intend to sell them locally as well. So that's something that we'll be looking at doing uh, going into next uh, ground fishing season starting in May.
1: Great. Glenn, what have you learned from the customers when you began to, to, to work directly with them? I understand you were at the Common Ground Fair, so that's a, a, a new venture to go help people understand how to fillet fish. What, what else have you learned about um, what customers need?
2: Well the thing that we've learned is that they never really, a lot of them didn't really ever have a really fresh fish before. Mm-hmm. Uh, <coughs> I've had a lot of stories about, uh, I don't think I can go back to the supermarket because these are too good. Um, the other thing we learned is people weren't really aware of the loss of the fishing access that they had. Hmm. And uh, we had some stories, we had a CSF on Mount Desert Island. We also do uh, Restaurant deliveries along with our CSF deliveries to Mm -hmm. help put more weight on the truck basically, Mm -hmm. but it's been a fairly good business and uh, There was a a lady that came down there from uh, she'd just moved there from uh, New Jersey. I think it was and she said uh, When we moved to MDI we were really excited because we thought we could go right down to the dock and get fresh fish off the boats And when they got there there wasn't any fishermen so They were quite pleased to see us show up. I bet. It's really raised the awareness of this problem among the consumers.
1: Sure.
0: Jen? Um, I think that the other point that that really pulls in is that um, being that this is a public resource and pulling the public into um, this realm of of the management and following what's going on because it's their resource Mm -hmm. and it's really helping to build the political base um, that these fishermen are fishing under and pulling them into the process. Within the New England Fisheries Management Council, I mean, in the council, Seats you have mostly um, uh, state agencies, you have conservation groups, you have fishermen. Such as Glenn's actually one of the newest members onto the council in New England. Um, but the public is not really there as a general public to talk about you know what they want done with their fish and how they want it managed. So I think it's a really uh, new thing that we're seeing that the fish the fishermen delivering directly to these consumers are saying this is my fisherman, he mm-hmm. delivers my fish, and really pulling them into that piece of it's been missing and really creating the pa- the political base. Um, uh, from
1: that. Well, we certainly have lots of stories about school children who don't know where their eggs come from or their carrots come from, and we're seeing a change in how people think about educating kids um, and the regular consumer. Most people don't know where their fish comes from and you're helping tell that story in such a way that they, they see that they have, a, they have a piece of the action, mm-hmm. so to speak, and, and as we think about down east, you, you think of, of uh, you know, from Penobscot Bay to Eastport, um, you think of that as a fishing community, but y- y- as you said, um, Aaron, there aren't very many people going to sea. Um, they're, they're lobstering still, but they're, even that is, is, is sh- kind of shaky
3: well those 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 areas um that the two counties, Hancock and Washington county are the the two most fishery dependent counties on the east coast, mm. and there are a lot of fishermen in the area that that they are really heavily dependent on fisheries um, but the problem is that they're dependent on a single fishery and and that fishery is heading into some difficulty right now with bay prices going up, uh, lobster prices going down. Fuel continuing to creep up, it's just getting very uh, much more difficult, and so that profit margin for fishermen is really getting narrowed down, and 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 some people are are not able to make it. It's it's going to be a a, a difficult uh, couple of years. Hopefully that will improve, but really what we need for long-term stability in the area is is a diversity, and and what we had traditionally is the ability for fishermen throughout Maine and throughout New England to be able to catch scallops, lobster, groundfish, herring in some cases, in a a variety of other fish as well. Um, We don't have that anymore. We've Mm -hmm. lost that diversity, and that's really what we need to rebuild in these communities in order to sustain us in the long term.
1: So that's the same kind of what um, people on land might call biodiversity to right. make sure you're talking about a marine biodiversity. Absolutely. We do have time for at least one phone call, one 625 9378 if you've got a comment as we talk about changing seas, federal policy, and the opportunities and challenges that means for Maine's fishermen. Well, where would you like to see this go? Um, what's, the, what's the end product that you're looking for? Are you looking for sustainable communities and sustainable fisheries and sustainable fishermen? Is that what it's all about, Glenn?
2: Absolutely, all three things. That's mm-hmm. that's the goal, and it's probably going to be a really long road to get there. But uh, there's been a lot of surprises along the way with this thing, and it, uh, I hopefully we have a pleasant surprise, and it doesn't <laughs> take as long as we
1: think it will. Right. Well, it sounds like you're you're helping um, your colleagues in in the fishing world that you're in think in new new ways about this this whole process, and. Are you finding that people are responding to that? Are, are they responding because they're they're curious about it, or are they are jumping in with both feet? Oh, I'd say five or six years
2: ago, we are all individuals, uh-huh. all uh, just working as independent businesses and yep. businessmen, and there wasn't really a lot of unity. Uh-huh. Saw a really remarkable thing last winter, shrimping. We had a processor quota each week
3: mm-hmm. or each
2: day, mm-hmm. and what would happen was somebody would get more, the next guy would get less, he'd stay out longer we'd go over every day Mm. processor wasn't being real happy Mm -hmm. about that Mm -hmm. so we got together as a group one day and had a meeting and said okay we'll stay in contact on the radio as soon as we meet the quota as a whole we'll all go in and split the catch never seen anything like that before Uh, that was pretty remarkable for a group of fishermen to come together in that way right
0: right And that's exactly the opportunity that we'll have under sectors now, having a group of fishermen in constant contact working under uh, a business plan together where they can actually think about operating and working that way. Um, Mm. And it it brings about sustainability of the resource and more profitability to the fishermen Mm -hmm. and the communities and Mm -hmm. all of that.
1: And Aaron, what are your hopes for the future?
3: Well, you know, I do just want to say that I I give uh, fishermen and all this a a whole lot of credit. Um, Glenn and fishermen that I work with in eastern Maine um, have all been in this much longer than I have, and and <laughs> that in itself is a, is a testament to uh, you know to their their um, staying power. There's been a lot of setbacks. There's been a lot of difficulties, but I think we're at a point now where we can really see a new vision for the future, and it's great that people are definitely really committed to this because I think it's not a question of will we succeed, but when. And um, we've laid out some options here between the permit bank and the sector and community supported fisheries. We've been pushed to a point where the old models won't work anymore, and we've got to find some new ones. And that's really what we're, we're what we're exploring, and, and I think it's pretty exciting.
1: Great. And contact information for Penobscot East?
3: So you can find us on the web at PenobscotEast.org, and you can email me at Aaron at PenobscotEast.org.
1: Great. And, Jen, uh, contact information for the Island Institute?
0: Uh, islandinstitute.org, and we also have a recent film uh, documentary from the Midcoast Fishermen's Association, and you can find that for sale shortly um, on our website and also their website.
1: Great. And contact information for the Midcoast Fishermen's Association and co-op? The association is midcoastfisherman.org,
2: and the co-op is portclydefreshcatch.com.
1: Great. Great. Well we've come to that time when I want to remind you this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. Join us from 10 to 11 on the second and fourth Friday mornings of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Coronach on a Balmain House Highland Music recording. Thanks again to our guests in the studio, Jen Literal of the Island Institute, Glen Libby of the Main Coast Midcoast Fishermen's Co-op, Will Brune from the Nature Conservancy and Aaron Doherty of Penobscot East Fisheries Resource Center. Thanks to those of you who listened and called in. Thanks to our underwriters. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program and stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning. <laughs> Support for Renewable Radio
2: comes from Quantum Insulators, LLC in Belfast.